0: Interdisciplinary Heal Well's podcast about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science, we love meaningful dissent, and we love to support our fellow humans in making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Thanks for joining us for another rousing conversation with the smart, compassionate, ridiculous people of Heal Well. Um, and before we go any further, I'm so excited to report we have another winner in our online review contest. Um, the, the tricky part about this, of course, is that when you leave a review, people don't like actually put their names out there. So hopefully this person will know and remember the screen name they use, which was LXR, E-L-E-X-A-R. And they left this lovely review and the title of it is Increasing Awareness of Diversity and Inclusivity Issues. I first started listening to this podcast in 2020 and followed through the name change. Great podcast to increase my awareness and my ability to respond more appropriately to diversity and inclusivity issues across population groups and always a pleasure to see in my podcast feed. So thank you for that, LXR, whoever you are, Uh, send us an email at podcast at healwell.org so that you can reap uh, the benefits of the incredible prize that you uh, decide that you want to do, which is um, a chat with uh, me, Cal Cates and uh, Kathy Bryan, or with me, Cal Cates, and the rest of the Heal Well Brain Trust, as you wish, as we've moved into this new uh, format. You could also talk with Rebecca Sturgeon and Janet Penny, authors of the most incredible oncology, massage, integrative care textbook in the history of ever. Um, Or you can have a t-shirt or a mug. Totally up to you. No pressure. Uh, But send us an email and let us know how we can thank you for that lovely review. Uh, And as you all know, of course, Before we get rolling, we like to start with a little pun. So um, it's more of a really a a little known fact today. Um, You know, Lance, it's not a real common name these days, but in medieval times, people were named Lance a lot. Oof, oof.
1: (laughs) It's a literary pun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Is it, is it Joe? (laughs) Oh boy. Well, you're welcome either way. Uh, So here we are today. Uh as will become usual. I've got my pals Carrie Jordan, Rebecca Sturgeon, and Corey Rivera joining me from all corners of the globe and the room next to this room, um, depending on which person we're talking about. And uh today we're gonna talk about joy and various aspects of joy. So uh yeah, where should we start, you guys? It's a it's a big topic. Corey, uh, I see you with your hand up in the front, please. It's me raising my hand audibly. Do it. it's excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have definitions
2: for joy, happiness, awe, and play. And um, I actually wanna start with happiness because I'm starting to really dislike it as a definition. So excellent. here we go. So here's a short history of happiness. Um, happiness itself is generally defined as how good we feel over time. So it is a long-term feeling, which means when people say, you should just be happy. That's a really tall order. Um, so happiness went from being discouraged pre-18th century, and then we hit the Enlightenment. And um, I have in my notes here that the Enlightenment birthed toxic positivity, and that's where we remain today. So oh, excellent. Um, it was more about intellectualism and less about original sin, um, although it wasn't any less about God, interestingly enough, because happiness is something that is pleasing to God, which is nothing I have ever read in any text ever but that's what they decided so cool um by 1792 we already had the smiling american stereotype going which is awfully early um i thought and um apparently we were just happy from moment one um and then i kind of rounded up here so in the 1920s literature started to stress being happy um, and having a personal responsibility for it um, and sort of resources available for you. I looked up the phrase happiness is a choice and I found three different books that had that in the title, not one, but three. Wow. Um, one of them seemed to be pretty normal and also talked about like when you're not happy and things that you can do to help that. One of them was like absolute toxic positivity and the other was um, like memoirs of older people. So that seemed um, slightly cherry picked, but. Anyway, um, and then by 1940, there was the decision made that children should be happy, and it is the responsibility of our parents to make that happen. So a lot of literature came out about making kids happy and adults miserable. I suppose. Um, Seems to follow. (laughs) um, There are some light points. Um, So Harvard has done an 80-year study over happiness. Um, It started with only men because it was 80 years ago. Um, It now includes their children and wives and people around them. Um, And it says, mostly it says that close relationships make an enormous difference in happiness and health. And that's like, over almost everything. So um, they said it delays mental and physical decline. It's a better predictor of health and happiness than class IQ genetics and cholesterol. Um, Marital satisfaction, which does not mean not fighting, it means being able to count on your partner protects both health and memory. And um, an idea that we've talked about in the community actually recently is that loneliness kills at the same rates as alcohol and smoking. Um, so happiness is protective, but maybe not all of the time, forever, every day, every moment. Um, joy, on the other hand, is an intense momentary experience of positive emotion, and it is scientifically measured by how much you want to jump up and down, which is an yes. amazing measurement. <laughs>
1: um, so there's a woman Wait, wait, named... I'm I'm gonna need to know the name of that scale. Uh <laughs> oh, I don't have it for you. I don't know.
2: Um It's called we'll put the, put Pogometer. It in the show notes if I can the find Pogometer. it.
1: Pogoometer. <laughs> um so there's a woman
2: named Ingrid Fetal-Lee, who has a TED Talk and a book and any number of other things. She's an architect, and she um, talks about joy in design and aesthetics. And she talked to a lot of people about what brings them joy, and she found some really common things. So um, cherry blossoms, bubbles, swimming pools, tree houses, googly eyes, which was my favorite, um, hot air balloons, ice cream cones, particularly with sprinkles. And this was all ages, all genders, all ethnicities, just across the board. These things bring people joy. So she sort of looked into why, or at least what about them brings people joy. And she found that we like round things um, because triangular things tend to be sharp and pointy and scary. So like our brains are like, no, roundy, yes, good. Um, we like symmetry, which is not a surprise. Um, we really like color pops, I think just cause we're humans. Um, abundance was a big thing. So having many of one thing, since scarcity is so hardwired in our brains, that if there's one of something, it doesn't matter what it is, your brain is immediately like, but there's only one, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if there's only one? So there's lots of them. Then you like, you just relax. Um, and then lightness and elevation was the other thing. Um, so balloons and bubbles. Um, she also points out that our work and living spaces are really square and colorless and sad and Terrible and everything (laughs) that is not all of the things that she talked about. Um, So that's joy in design. And then um, the Dalai Lama has a book called um, The Book of Joy that was written with Desmond Tutu and Douglas Adams. And in it, he talks about the eight pillars, which are perspective, which is when the eye becomes an us, Um, humility, he says that real arrogance comes from insecurity, which I heartily agree with, Um, humor. Uh, Douglas Adams says that it, humor is a universal indication of spiritual elevation, which I thought was a cool phrase. Um, acceptation, as acceptation, which is a terrible word to say, I'm sorry, um, which is to accept what you can't change and change what you can't accept. Um, forgiveness, gratitude, compassion, and generosity. Um, so I'm going to pause there for any comments
1: before I go on. If anyone
3: Sounds simple.
1: In. <laughs> yeah, no problem simple and difficult well I, i'm interested in and maybe we'll get into this like cultural differences in what is joyful because i was yeah. thinking about that when you said like a, a a single thing versus an abundance of things and i was thinking of like marie kondo and Carrie jordan who, who like simple, simple spaces that are not overcrowded and also like a what i think of as a in my ignorant way is a japanese aesthetic particularly like a flower arranging that has a lot of empty space, so that
0: was my thought for the moment. Well, and I was I was wondering too. Like, I got for some reason I got hung up on the the ice cream cone with sprinkles because I was like, the eating of an ice cream cone with sprinkles can be a truly miserable experience because the sprinkles Agreed. go everywhere and whatever. But but seeing the color pop and like seeing an ice cream cone with sprinkles, I, I can I can feel a sense of like, oh that's so cool. Please don't bring that near me. Um, and so, like, you know, <laughs> what's the experience of this thing versus just seeing it, and how does that all work out?
2: Okay, I got two more for
0: you. So, the first one is awe, mm-hmm. which
2: is the feeling of being in the presence of something so vast that you can't understand it. Um, this includes nature and art and impressive people or feats or acts of skill or virtue, um, which is a really diverse list of things. Um, the examples that I found were things like hearing thunder or being moved by music or watching leaves change, um, night skies and kindness. Um, people report feeling time and space shifting and it causes um, a blend of senses, which is the thing that scientists actually track when they're tracking awe. Um, it enables us to act in a more collaborative way. It literally makes you a nicer person, straight up. Like. Um, there's this common experiment that's done where they um, expose you to something and then they have somebody accidentally in quotation marks come by and drop a bunch of pencils and see what you do. Um, And the nicer you're feeling, the more pencils you will pick up. Um, And I've read this experiment before, but never in the awe area. So if you awe somebody, they pick up more pencils. Um, So it provides cooperation, um, shared resource sacrifice for other people, modesty and a decrease in narcissism thumbs up all the way around um stimulates wonder curiosity and an invention in your brain and something that i found absolutely crazy um so there's a very small study and it's a very initial finding but it's really cool which is that cytokines which are proteins that signal inflammation in your body all can reduce your levels of cytokines which is Ooh! very cool so
0: go outside and be in awe of things more yeah. Well it makes me it makes me think about um Carrie and I read some study or maybe it was a documentary I can't remember but the about um this woman had studied uh well-being I guess as it relates to time in nature and I, I wonder I, I mean she didn't look at the how that happened but just showed that the more time people spent in nature the sort of overall stronger their sense of well-being was and I wonder how much of your experience of nature and awe and the cytokine thing have to do with you know we're all walking around in an inflammatory state uh so often and you know is this part of what calls us to nature is our bodies are like please take me to a place where i won't understand but i'll be overcome with beauty and (laughs) amazingness um my last one is
2: play which is a range of intrinsically motivated activities done for recreational pleasure and enjoyment is a very specific definition, um, and it also means that if what you're doing has a particular purpose, like exercising only for your cardiovascular health, it is no longer play. It does not count. Do not pesco. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Um, fool yourself. Don't fool yourself, and okay. go have some play as well, because cardiovascular health is also important. Um, The opposite of play is depression, which I thought was a crazy cool statement um, because depressed people cannot play. Um, All primates, including us, play past childhood. We're kind of the only ones who do. Um, So felines, not so much, although I suppose that could be debated. Um, Play is how we connect. It helps with the relationships. And there's a phrase called neotenny, which is the retention of immature qualities into adulthood. And I am proud to say I am a master of neotenny yes this entire podcast is so yes
1: absolutely that's, what I you. Wow.
0: that's I'm,
1: I'm just i'm baffled by the the idea that cats and dogs in particular don't play I mean,
0: yeah i wonder what the read is like it is because i know like with cats there's this like because we've well i can't even say we've domesticated them we've pretended that we've domesticated them that there's this whole thing about how you're basically the way you interact with them is you're supposed to support their normal. Um, like it's like hunting. Um, there are a couple steps that like they do before they eat and then sleep. And that like, it's not actually play it's, it's like hunt and stalk and something else. And so there's sort of a purpose, even though obviously there's not like big game in your house or probably there isn't.
1: Well, I mean, other than myself, no.
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
3: But crows, I mean, there's been tons of studies yes. that show that crows and ravens and corvids in general play for play's yeah. sake. Mm-hmm. And I believe elephants as well are on that list. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That sounds like some anthropomorphic bullshit. <laughs> or not <really. laughs> Anthro- right. anthropocentric bullshit. Yes. Anthro- right. Anthropocentric bullshit. Yeah. yeah
3: I'll bet slime molds are having a great time and we just don't know. <laughs> I'm telling I you. Mean, all those moses. Right? Yeah. All about it. Slime mold rave.
0: Ain't nothing yeah, like right? it. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs>
3: Well, I was going to say, so I, you know, my piece of this uh, was was looking at uh, across cultures, joy across cultures um, and, which means I read several insanely joyless uh, dissertations and research papers uh, about this. Um, <laughs> but, but one of the things that Corey, some of your definitions made me think of is a uh, an, actually a dissertation that I read titled, hold on. Let me check my notes here. Uh, being and Beholding: Comparative Analysis of Joy and Awe in Four Cultures by Daria B. White from James Madison University. Uh, and I'm going to uh, scroll through the 202 pages of this dissertation uh, to find the definitions uh, that 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 this person used. Which I thought the the one about awe I want to go back to because. Um, The definition of of joy was similar about this spontaneous, uh, basically positive emotion. Um, Also described as a fulfillment of deep yearnings and a heightened sense of fulfillment, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Well, happiness is just generally a positive feeling, was how how, um, this person defined this. But their definition of awe um, started with a basic emotion of beholding something outside the self. Evoked by a perception of greatness and the cognitive effort to accommodate the new information. And I really like this because in conversations that um, the four of us have had uh, offline about this question, we, we have talked a lot about awe and the fact that awe doesn't have to be positive exactly the way it feels like joy and happiness and play like you know I feel like awe gets mixed up in um but you know certainly at the bedside of dying people I have felt awe you know um really cold and unhappy and hungry outside backpacking I have felt awe <laughs> uh, and so I I'm interested in I'm interested in that and I'm interested in the external requirement it seems to have versus these other words that we're defining and talking about right I mean joy happiness even play is sort of an internal experience it you know by this definition and even but by the definition you gave Corey like I feel like there is an external requirement for awe to happen is it like you can't tickle yourself
2: you can't cause awe yeah
0: right exactly yeah yeah Yeah, because even if you're, even if you are, like, I I am often in awe of the, I guess, the ways you can surprise yourself. But even then, you're sort of removed into, like, an observing of your experience kind of a way. Like, you didn't make it happen. You noticed that you either suddenly feel this way or you no longer feel this way or whatever it is that surprises you. You didn't do it. It's sort of you happen to be witness to it.
3: Well, and is the requirement a sort of connectedness that even joy and happiness don't require? Right? Like the 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 sudden um, awareness or like like a, a putting in your place, like you are but a tiny bit of this giant bigger thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's yeah. interesting that that information
2: inflammation would decrease your inflammation mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
3: instead of make it worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're free.
1: Well, I think it is. There's something almost evolutionary about being able to connect with the sense that you are not either alone or in charge. And that there's, a, I mean, there's like a redu- reduction of, is it cytokines for that one in particular yeah. for that one, Corey? Yeah. Um, that there's an evolutionary benefit to um, to seeing your your smallness or seeing something else's greatness.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm thinking about some of the recent experiences that I I think would fall into the odd category, and for me at least, the ones that are popping to mind are are things in nature, and that. The experience is, is this idea that you're talking about, Rebecca, that like what's fun, funny, jump up and downy about it is this is happening all the time. I just happen to be here in this moment. <laughs> like like Carrie and I were on a hike and we saw this mama squirrel carrying her babies across the forest floor and up this tree trunk and literally tossing them into this hole in this other tree trunk. And she was clearly like moving her nest I am sure that when we were watching that it was happening in forests all over the world. And that normally you wouldn't get to see that, but we just stood there and time stopped. And we just watched this mama squirrel go back and forth and bring like three different babies over. And then we watched her like, no joke, like practically put her arm up on the tree and just pant like, those babies are heavy. And like, but this is how this happens all the time. But me in my house or me driving my car, whatever, I'm not thinking about mama squirrel, like trying to protect her babies and move them to a new place. But this is this and versions of this are happening constantly without my knowing, without my involvement, without anything to do with me. And I'm so deeply grateful that I got to see it and that I don't have to be here for it to be happening. Like it was this whole thing that felt amazing.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's something really beautiful about that, that the idea that there's this whole world that's going on around us, whether we witness it or not. Um, and tapping and tapping into that. Um, like that, that could be I'm I'm trying to find a word that's not healing, but that could be beneficial. There we go. That could be beneficial for ourselves and, and our bodies. Um, and I think it's it could be beneficial in a larger sense for the way that we steward the planet that we
0: live on. Right? Do you think like that I we've, won- have we ruined the word healing? Is that why you didn't want to use it or why? I,
1: I think, I think it gets co-opted um, in ways that are not helpful sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm trying to be like precise, at least in this podcast in life, all bets are off, but <laughs> I'm trying to be precise yeah. about what I actually mean um, with the language, yeah. Um, and I have, I have personal issues around the word healing and healer, but that's for another podcast, maybe a bonus episode. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, and I wonder if like the way that we have neglected the stewardship of the earth, that is our responsibility as creatures who live on the earth, um, how much of that stems from a lack of awe and a lack mm-hmm. of awe producing experiences.
3: The other uh, nerdy piece that I wanna bring into this is, is that uh, one of the things that uh, that I thought, that stood out to me in researching for this episode was that um, of course I fell down the rabbit hole of the etymology of all of these words. Um, and one of the things that came up particularly as they were talking about um, a lot of the research uh, about the cultural differences around joy and happiness um, Americans are like off in their own category. The United States is particularly hard to, to compare to other nations,
0: um, which of course- <laughs> it's not a point of pride, people. <laughs> of course <laughs> it
3: is. Um, but one of the things that was interesting was um, language, of course, and, and the etymology of the word happiness um, coming from the old English word hap, which is luck versus, <laughs> right, <laughs> versus the, um, the languages that use a word um, more like felicidad, right, um, that comes from uh, the, the root, w- the Latin, uh, I believe it's Latin, uh, root that is about abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt like, um, I don't know, I'm going to stop right there because I felt like that in and of itself was just awesome,
1: well, that it, I just had this moment of like, oh, my God, that explains so much about how Americans are around happiness, right? Yeah. Because there's so much of what we we think will bring happiness is is all about luck. Like how much money you have, what you know, what your
0: your um,
1: material situation is, you know, where you were born in the it's, it's all. Luck.
0: Oh, that's but Rebecca, how much money I have is directly proportional to how hard I work. <laughs> no, kids have you met
1: have you been at here <laughs>
3: right but exactly what you're saying kelly like, it, it occurred to me that at the same time that we have this bizarre disconnect right that between our language and and between what's actually happening and our and our belief system and and in the the research that positivity psychologists which i love that that's the field um uh, uh the positivity psychologists have a really hard time with americans because we um we don't distinguish between joy and happiness and we often don't understand the role that awe plays, and so when asked these questions, Americans kind of fall down um, in a way that's fascinating to me.
0: Well, and I'm interested in in y'all's perspective about a a thing that we experienced recently in um, in one of the courses that Carrie and I teach, Dismantling Whiteness. It's a 10-week course, and we had, um, in this particular cohort that we just uh, concluded with, we had basically a cohort of about uh, 10 Uh, suburban white women ranging from probably, well, we had one woman who was probably in her mid-20s, you know, up to like mid-60s. And we really hit a wall with them when we started to talk about Adrienne Marie Brown's work and pleasure activism and the role of joy in liberation. And they really pulled out all the stops to not go there they started by saying i am joyful i am happy and sort of like really just defending uh, really coming from a place of defensiveness about like i can't first of all i can't believe we're talking about this because we're here to learn how to not be racist and um you know we don't have time for this but then as we went deeper into it there was this sense of like but i'm fine like i'm good i have and then they would list all the stuff that they have or the comforts that they enjoy or you know it would come back around to this dog chasing its tail of like, you know, this is frivolous. And it's really interesting to me that we have this, this toxic positivity that I'd love for the exploration of this conundrum to delve into that. Cause we sort of, you know, Corey mentioned it, but I don't know that a lot of people have a, a working definition of toxic positivity. And I feel like that's really kind of what we saw happen was this idea that i I'm not going to admit in front of a group of my peers that I have anything less than a joyful life. And what are the layers of that, and how does that play into how our culture works, hustle culture, like how many pieces are laid over each other to prevent our access to joy? And you know, I think about Corey talking about the Dalai Lama with the eight pillars. I mean, the eight pillars are hard stuff humility, perspective, like we don't have these things. So what do we do with this cultural idea that joy is super important, but I'm good. I already have it. I'm all set.
1: (laughs) Do you have a sense? I'm curious if you and Carrie have a sense of like how much of that resistance came from um, you know, people being aware of uh, these white women being aware of their privilege and feeling like if they actually did talk about ways in which their existence is not joyful, that they were somehow
3: um, taking, you know, centering themselves in a way that wasn't appropriate. Yes, a huge part of the conversation was also about it doesn't matter, like almost a deserving sort of situation, like what we should be talking, like we should be stepping back, we shouldn't be worried about our own joy at all because black people need to have joy and we're, you know, we've historically gotten in the way of that or we're whatever. And it's really interesting because of course when you research pleasure activism and when you talk to activists, um, people, black, indigenous people of color who do liberation work, you know, they universally practically say, we have joy. You white people are the problem because you don't have access to joy. Like, and yes, you're kind of, you know, harsh and our mellow a lot. Um, but really a huge part of your problem is your inability to really embrace and feel and prioritize joy. Um, and the people in this, uh, particular cohort really struggled with, I feel like even just wrapping their heads around it. I feel like it, it really was a, um, there was just a complete breakdown in understanding of, of why this would be important. And certainly white guilt played a huge role in that. But I also think it was just, as Cal said, there was just sort of befuddlement. Like, why, why would you talk about this ever, anywhere, but particularly in this setting?
2: I was gonna say, I consider the lack of joy and how um talked about all those layers to get to this place where joy is, um, not a good thing, um, and an embarrassing thing even, um, and I, that's capitalism. <laughs> I guess that's hard capitalism, because if you're miserable and you need to work harder, then you you're not going to fight. That's
0: right. right. And that's where we want you. So yeah, if you're down. feeling good, you're going to get lazy. Mm-hmm well and i think you you had a really good point there too because i do think so there's there's the embarrassment that comes with joy because it means i'm not working right but there's also like to be to be able to experience joy or awe and not that they're synonyms but i feel like in a way vulnerability is necessary <laughs> and because you know i remember one of my teachers from a long time ago said that we hate to be caught learning And I feel like joy is the same. That's the like when you experience joy, it's this like, oh gosh, like you know, I I've probably told this story before about um, we were on a walk past this pond, and we watched a frog bounce off the butt of a, was it a what was it muskrat of a muskrat. Like this frog was just skittering across the top of the pond, hit the muskrat in the butt. The muskrat went straight in the air and the frog went under the water. And I I don't even know what sound I made, but like a sound came out of me of like joy and like, holy cow, like that was amazing. How did we happen to be here at this moment and get to see that? And if I had been a more self-conscious person, I probably would have looked around to be like, oh my God, like, did anybody see me like shriek or whatever? And I feel like, that's what happens with when we have experiences of joy, we kind of go, oh gosh, you know, I hope nobody saw that happen. And that, you know, it's, it's like vulnerability being forced upon us in a way, or sort of like we get seen in a way that we don't want to be seen. And we're for just that moment, not in control of how we're being perceived. And we hate that.
1: Well, yeah, and I wonder if there's a sense in which we feel like we should have outgrown that. Like I I think about, I was getting on a plane, and there was a little toddler with her mom in front of us on the plane, who I guess was being potty trained because she knew her her mom right as we're getting on the plane. She said, "Mom, I went poop on the potty," you know, and like everybody was so happy about this. But like, we're not gonna ever. (laughs) Can
2: we talk about collective experience for a second? Actually, yeah, yeah. So, um one of the things that we're doing in the community right now is asking people what makes them joyful. Um, and certainly more people are clicking than actually posting. And I really wish that they would post because I really want to see what makes people joyful. So if you're in the community, please, 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 please put something up. (laughs) Um, but one of the things I posted is, um, a live theater event it doesn't matter what the theater event is because the joyful part is about six seconds into the video when this crowd of probably 150,000 people yells at the same time because they recognize the song that's being played and if you watch like if you continue watching the video they do like the same arm movements all together and there's just screaming for like six minutes um and (laughs) this song is from like 1992 by the way um and it's a super nerdy thing so it's a super nerdy event and a super like it's been around for a while and people just explode. Um, and I think it's interesting that the way that a crowd can let you experience that. Um, I think collective experience is the best thing ever. Um, I miss movie theaters so much and live theater so much that I started watching professional wrestling, which sounds crazy, but professional wrestling has the most interactive audiences of anything on the planet.
0: Yes, um,
2: literally, they are the epitome of reacting and then the people on the stage react and then the crowd reacts and it just goes on and on and on. Um, And like the permission that you get when everybody else around you is also screaming is just incredible. And as a person who has a rough time regulating their emotions to like know what the emotion is that I am supposed to be regulating anyway is (laughs) super helpful. Cause then I can be like, oh, like it's joy right now. Or, we're like, doing we're this. We're all booing together or we're like, everybody's <laughs> playing along with the same game at the same time. And like a minute and I'm doing it right. It's great. So, <laughs> yes. Maybe it's about doing it right. And then like, we don't know how anymore. Cause it yeah. really is not right. But,
3: well, this makes me think of more of the the dry research that I looked into, and one of the preeminent positivity psychology researchers who looks at cultural differences and joy is a guy named William Tov, um, and he is uh, he was raised in the United States, but his parents are Cambodian immigrants, and so a lot of his work has looked at East Asian cultures versus Americans and uh, joy and Westerners in general, but particularly Americans and. Um, one of the things that he talks about a lot is, um, collectivist versus individualist societies, right. And, and no, no surprises here. Um, but also the high affect versus low affect of happiness and joy. And that one of the reasons it's really hard, um, he was particularly talking, I think about at one point about the, every year they say like, here's the happiest country. And it's always Finland. Um, followed by other Scandinavian nations. And he's like, you know, this is totally bull because we don't even measure happiness in the same way. And in the United States, happiness and joy are high affect emotions. Like, you know, when you ask people to describe what what is happiness, what is joy, it's high affect. When you ask East Asian people, it is generally low affect. It is calm, it is contentment, And so even just their definition of or experience of joy and happiness is completely different. But the other thing that they found is that they talked about um, not just collectivist um, societies, but whether it's a vertical or a horizontal collectivism, because he talked about like in Japan or in many of the East Asian nations, it's it's a vertical collectivism. So the the other people's emotions and 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 feelings around you are very important, but they're important in a hierarchical way. And so your happiness can be put aside for your mother's and the way that you will behave or experience joy in the presence of your boss versus your family, you know, whatever. Whereas in Latin American nations that he looked at, there's a more um, horizontal collectivism. And so there is, a, again, less less regulation of that emotion, like you're talking about Corey, in terms of what are the other people around me doing? And so again, the joy looks different, <laughs> um, but relies on other people, unlike in the United States where most people's joy, while they talk about their family and friends or whatever, it's a, it's a individual and isolated experience. So it makes sense that we need a crowd to tell us we can all cheer, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Is it though, I mean, I think we
1: think it's an individual and isolated experience because of some of our collective American pathologies around individualism. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if we really had a way to um, look at it and understand it, that maybe we'd understand that it's not. It's like the
0: mushrooms. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I him. yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and when you were talking, Carrie, I was thinking about um, some of the dry things that I read uh, about joy and, and about the, the tension of, so one of the things that I, I read and I'm still reading, and of course, the, the Dale Carnegie and me is like taking notes and can't wait to bring this to the Heal well staff meeting. But um, <laughs> Don, Don Berwick and his pals at the Institute for um, Healthcare Improvement wrote a uh, a paper about and did interventions in healthcare systems about bringing joy to the people who work in those systems. And it was no surprise to me that it also benefits the bottom line. And so my struggle, of course, is the way we get the C-suite folks to buy into improving the human experience is by supporting their capitalistic goals. And how do we like, how do we move in a way that that we're actually duping them right so that you know we need them to buy in so that they will invest in building joy and the structures that support joy in our work environments because patients do better staff members do better When you look at how much it costs, when like a nurse leaves and you have to hire a new nurse or a physician leaves and you have to hire a new person, like it's way cheaper to just invest in making people's lives better. And in fact, results in less medical mistakes and all these other things that not only save money, but make money, like it's stupid that we're not doing this. And, but if the metrics that wind up getting used go back to the balance sheet, how do we actively participate in creating that shift without continuing to support the capitalistic model. Like the reason I believe in this is because it's going to make us money when the people on the floor are believing in it because it's making their lives better and their patients are doing better and going home better or dying more peacefully or whatever it might be that at some point we have to divorce ourselves from this is valuable because it makes slash saves money. Do you know what I'm like? I'm, I'm Mm -hmm. saying. Mm
3: you know it makes me wonder about um i i had the good fortune to get to go to cuba um about 8 or 10 years ago and um one of the things that was really interesting to me about the trip is of course you as an american there you had to have a cuban minder at all times and you were only allowed to go certain places but our uh, our cuban minder our tour guide was a a really young woman i think she's 24 years old um and uh she was fascinating and incredibly open uh, about her experience Um, and her and our bus driver was um, basically her parents age and so he was somebody who had lived before the revolution in Cuba and through the revolution and of course she had not Um, (laughs) and so one of the one of the really fascinating conversations we had with her was she was talking about what will Cuba look like in 15, 20 years, because she was saying the people of my generation, free education, free healthcare, food, housing, those are a given. Having grown up in, in a nation that has a socialist setup, a communist setup, however you want to call it. And she said, and and for whatever you your opinion of communism or socialism is, my generation, you know, my parents' generation and the bus driver was confirming that, like, having lived in the before times, and certainly having lived through the famine that immediately followed the revolution in Cuba, they you know, were so happy with the idea of free education, free housing, food, <laughs> things like that, uh, that, that it just seemed like that was all that they could dream of. And this woman was saying, my generation considers all those things just the baseline and we want iPhones, and we want free travel, and, and, and. And so, you know, there there is in some way, of course, of course the older generation was like, you can't. We have to pick. Either we remain a closed nation that takes care of its people and has 100% literacy rate and zero homelessness and all these restrictions, or we give it up and it all falls to shit um, because you wanna travel. <laughs> and I I wonder if, the same is true for capitalism that like it, even being carried to its sort of logical conclusion, like you're talking about Cal, that like to help make more money for the mega conglomerates, we bring joy in. Once you are a person with boots on the ground who, when that becomes normal, when joy in your workplace becomes the expected, part of me feels like that's when you can actually dismantle capitalism. Like we can't do it until there's something better, um, something more important, something baseline that everybody agrees. I'm not willing to give this up for capitalism. Does that make sense? Am I just ranting like a loon? We're not ranting
1: like a lunatic. It does make sense.
3: Um, And I'm just thinking about,
1: the tendency for corporations to co-opt things that are yeah mm-hmm. like bringing joy into the workplace oh i got a calcate's on the nose on that one but that they that the it's, it's like the way that many corporations are um doing diversity you know right that um they're doing it just enough to look good like there's uh i spent a couple of past couple of days with my partner, we were looking at various banking websites for various reasons and noticing, huh, there's a lot of brown people in the pictures now.
0: Interesting. Yep.
1: But that's the only thing that has changed. <laughs> so yeah. I, I fear that like, rather than getting to this place, Carrie, that you're talking about, the corporations will be like, yeah, okay, so um, this many fewer of our, fewer of our people need um, mental health days because of stress. We did it, you know, <laughs> <Back>. yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I I have to wonder though if, so is something like putting brown people on things that's, you know, you just change the picture and it's fine. Um, and you steal the picture from somebody else and it's fine. Um, but I don't know think you fake joy. Mm. Um, so if you're faking it in the like classic pink washing brown people style of faking it, I don't know if that would affect your bottom line either. Like... But at that point, would it be just
0: like, "Oh well, it doesn't work, so we're gonna stop now"? Yeah, right. <laughs> would you well, actually I, listen? I feel like it's it's a place again where tending is necessary, and so so you bring Don Barwick and all these people in, and for a year you have people really paying attention to and fostering joy. It saves lots of money. It makes lots of money, and we say this is a hospital where this happens. And then how joyful you are becomes part of your annual review. And some person who maybe has a different idea of what joy is than you do or doesn't like you for some reason decides you're not joyful enough. And that, you know, there's like these bizarro metrics that like the bean counters decide how do we count joy? And then we have pop, then we have toxic joy happening also. Like you better not be not joyful. You know, this is a joyful hospital. And I guess that's my, Cory's not jumping up and fear. down enough. No, right. Exactly. Like I haven't seen your, <laughs> but feet do you before, want to jump up and down you're just today. not doing it? Right. Totally. <laughs> you seem repressed today. <laughs> Yeah, or are you just wearing heavy shoes? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you put a metric on a thing, yeah, nuance is lost. I feel like, and this is this is a lot of what was discussed in in the papers that I read. Is like the reason that we don't have great data, quote unquote, about joy is that it's not a thing you can put in a box, and it's it expresses itself in different ways, in different environments, and there are cultural aspects, and all of these things that you know. Once you start to try to quantify. A thing that is worthy of awe, which is defined by our inability to understand it, <laughs> you know, what do we do with that? And how do you cultivate, foster, and maintain something like that that's so squishy?
3: One of the things I really admired about Lame Tob's uh, work is that he is the first to say, and all of this is kind of silly because East Asian people aren't a monolith. Americans aren't a monolith, right? And that, you know, again, we're looking at such a broad, like ten thousand feet picture when we say Finns are the happiest people in the world. He, he, you know, he that he was very quick to say to what to your point, Cal. Like, I mean, even within the four of us here together, probably have four different when you get down to it definitions of joy, right? Mm-hmm. That's
1: right well we'll just have to see who starts jumping up and down first
0: that's right That's right we'll have to we'll have to invest in a pogo meter and a bubble and a bubble machine and a, and bubble, a bubble machine, machine. <laughs> definitely oh exactly. probably the heel the heel well forget the heel well jet we need a heel well hot air balloon <laughs> yeah we'll Only never get anywhere and that'll feel just right that's right
1: the gigantic googly eyes on this yes
0: side. yes heel well oh, is my. watching you boom
1: <laughs> amazing
0: well my friends i i i actually i don't fear uh you're welcome that we've left you with more questions than answers yet again uh as we've explored these very amorphous uh but deeply important concepts in our culture and lives uh well we thank you all oh, carrie's jumping up and down so i think you're that's going to come up in your performance review nice work um <laughs> And uh, make sure that you check out our Patreon content. We've got some really uh, fascinating stuff and uh, funny, fun, thought-provoking material in the super-secret squirrel vault of the Patreon content. So get in there and check it out. Bonus episodes. That's right. Um, Nothing brings joy like bonus episodes. Uh, So spread the word, leave us reviews. And uh, person who left that lovely review... Uh, please reach out to us, send us an email at podcast at healwell.org and we'll hook you up with some prizes and benefits and all that. Get out there on the social media, love us, like us, tell your pets, tell your friends, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at Thanks for listening.